It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Uh, well, welcome back to this study in Colossians. Uh, we are kind of coming down to the very end here. We only have this study and one more uh, in the book of Colossians. I'm really excited about looking at this as we're walking through the practicality of what does it mean for Christ to live inside of our lives. Uh, if you just remember the overall context, Jesus is to be preeminent, that he is to have first place in every area of our lives. And as we looked at last time, we've been walking through chapter three and four, which is the preeminence of Christ practically lived. And in the last two sessions, we were looking at verses one through 17, talking about the inner life with Christ, both personally and relationally. What I want to do in this particular session is look at verse or chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1, which is all about practical holiness in our relationships, in marriage, in family, and in work. So let's read the passage, just so it's fresh in our mind. This is Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Paul writes this, Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but with integrity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord Christ For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, show to your slaves what is right and fair, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. I really love this passage. I think the reason I like this passage is it gets down into the very gutters, the streets of our life, and it gets into the nitty-gritty of the relationships. Now, we could spend a lot of time, I mean, a lot of time just in this particular section. And I would highly encourage you to actually study through this in far more depth. In fact, I would encourage you to get the study guide, which is available for all of these sessions, along with the session notes and some other bonus resources. Uh, and there's, uh, there's usually a link below the video or in the show notes if you're listening to the audio. But I would encourage you to get the study guide so that you can study some of this out in a little bit more of a fuller sense. I just kind of want to step back and look at the overarching concept of what Paul is saying in each of these three sections. But again, there's so much depth and richness that I would encourage you to study this out on your own. Now, before we actually dive into those three sections, I want to ask or kind of point out and maybe an interesting observation with this particular passage. And it's this idea of Christ or Caesar. Uh, During Paul's day, one of the things that I just find intriguing is that Caesar, one of the names of Caesar was Curios, which was Lord. That one of the things that people would do is that when they would see the Caesar or when they talked about Caesar, they would say that Caesar is Lord, that he is the Curios, that that he is the Lord and master over all. So I find it intriguing that Paul almost strategically in his writings often talks about the fact that Jesus is the Curios, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that word kurios in the Greek shows up seven times in our verses in this little section. It's almost like Paul is emphasizing an intriguing undercurrent, uh, the subversive kind of a thing in the culture. 
And basically what, if I can maybe summarize it, it seems like what Paul is maybe suggesting kind of beneath the surface is there is only one Lord and Master. And you are going to have to make a decision. Is Caesar Lord of your life or is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Because when you look at this idea of Lord and Master, you cannot have two masters. You cannot serve two lords. Two things cannot be preeminent in first place in our lives. So is Jesus going to have that position of preeminence? Is he going to be first place? Or is Caesar going to have that position? Now, we don't have a Caesar in our culture today, but in a lot of ways, the way that term or that idea of the Caesar, it's that governmental ruling authorities, but maybe in a broader sense, if I can maybe use it this way, it's really the world system. Are you going to be succumb under the influence of success and popularity and, and the world's influence? Are you going to make Caesar and money and, and the lifestyle of the world your Lord and God? Or is Jesus going to be Lord and God? Again, there's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong you know, with you know, doing well at your job. In fact, we're going to get into that. Paul says you should do well at your job. But the reality is, is what is your heart affection? Where are you focused Which one is your Lord and Savior? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? And again, I love the fact that Caesar was known as the Savior of the world, that he was known as God come to earth. And it's all the same language that we call Jesus. So almost in a subversive sense, Paul is laying this out before us saying, who is going to be your Lord and Master? Who is going to be your God? Who are you going to serve? Is it Caesar Or is it Jesus? Because if you make it Caesar, you're going to lose Jesus. But if you make it Jesus, you're probably going to be (laughs) going to probably be in trouble with the world system, and you will be persecuted. But make your choice. Just as a fun—that was just a fun side note. A side note that I just find intriguing. Well, let's dive into this. Uh, There's three particular sections. Uh, There's this idea of marriage, children. Uh, or marriage, family, and the workplace. And if you're going to really understand this section, you really need to understand two Roman ideas because Paul is appealing to what would have been very common understanding or common knowledge of his day. So the first one is this idea of the paterfamilias, which means the father of the family or the head of the household. In Paul's day, there was this idea, there was this thing that was influencing the entire Roman world, and it was the idea of the paterfamilias. And it was the idea that there was one head of the household, which was the father. And, and as such, the father in this, in this household code, is what they would call it, in this code of honor of the household, the father was the one in charge. He made all the decisions. He, he carried all the affairs. He knew the finances. He dictated the slaves. He had the authority and the power. The reason that's really important is because if you were going to address a particular group or a a part of society, you would always direct your address to the paterfamilias. It's really interesting that in all three of these sections, Paul does not first address the paterfamilias. Rather, he deals with the opposite. Uh, For example, he starts off with wives— and then he deals with the husband, the paterfamilias. In the second section, he deals with children. And then he deals with the paterfamilias, the father. In the third section, he deals with the slave. And then he deals with the paterfamilias, the master. I love this idea. 
Because in so doing, it's, it's like Paul is instructing these three groups and, and by specifically addressing the wives, the children, and the slaves first, he's giving them dignity and honor and giving them a position in society. And again, it's not that the paterfamilias wasn't important because he does address those individuals, but he's saying, hey, I'm not just addressing you because these people have a responsibility in the very kingdom of God. Uh, the other idea was the patria po, uh, po, potius, I, I don't know Latin, sorry, <laughs> but the patria potestis, which meant the law of the father's power. So not only was there this paterfamilias, which was the, the husband, the father, the, the master who oversaw everything and had all legal authority over all those, he had absolute authority, but also contained in that is this idea of the patria potestis, or have you officially say it in the Latin? which really was this idea of the law of the Father's power, meaning this. The Father, or the Master, had absolute authority over his children and his slaves. A father, a Roman father, if he desired, he could take his child and really sell him into slavery. He could take a child and sell them off uh, into some servitude. Uh, he could, if he was angry, he could actually take a child and demand the execution of the child. Uh, the same thing is true with the slave. So if you think about the culture of which Paul is writing, he's writing in a culture where the man, and again, it does not matter if you like this idea, it doesn't matter if you agree with the idea, regardless, we're not talking about what should be in today's world, just for clarity's sake, <laughs> we're talking about Paul's day. In Paul's day, the man, the head of the household, had absolute authority, and he was the one you would always address first. So I think that's really important because as we get into these three sections, what you actually see Paul doing is almost, again, a subversive thing where he's giving dignity and honor and responsibility in the kingdom of God to the person under the influence of that paterfamilias. And it almost as if saying, Father or Master, look, I know you have absolute authority over a child, but child, let, let's address your issue first, and then I'm going to deal with the father thing. So let's get into these three sections. We're going to look at the idea of marriage and family and work. So let's start with marriage. Here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. He says, Wives, be submissive or subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. In a very similar passage in Ephesians, Paul says this. This is Ephesians 5, starting verse 22. He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to the husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So Paul, in both of these passages, in these parallel passages in Colossians and Ephesians, says, wives, you should come under and be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now, I do find it interesting that most, you know, if, if you hear this passage talked about, it's usually from men, and the men are usually saying, wives, submit, submit. And I do find it intriguing that that's like the shortest part of the whole passage. <laughs> Most of this is being addressed to the man saying, husband, love your wife. 
Well, how should I love my wife? As Christ loved the church. He gave her everything. In fact, he gave up his life for his bride, the church. Uh, But let's dive into this a little bit. That word for wives to be subject to, in the Greek, it means to be or become inclined or willing to submit to orders or wishes of others. It's actually two Greek words kind of brought together, hupo, which means under, and tasso, which means to arrange. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that you are to arrange yourself under, to bring yourself under someone else's authority. And obviously in the passage, the emphasis is that you have to do this voluntarily. That Paul says, hey, uh, you are to bring yourself under the authority of someone else. Now, it is intriguing that in every single one of these sections, each of these commands that Paul gives is in the present imperative. An imperative is a command. Present, it's interesting in the Greek, present tense isn't just like for the right now. It has this idea of the ongoing present tense. Meaning whenever it is present tense, this should be true in your life. So should it happen right now? Yes. What about right now? Yes. What about right now? Yes. So whenever it is present tense, Paul says this should be a part of your life. So he says, wives, hey, would you voluntarily bring yourself under the authority of your husbands? Now, as you get into this, it's really intriguing. Paul, and again, you'll you'll have to study this out on your own if you really want to dive into this, but Paul is addressing the Roman law of marriage. It's intriguing that when you look at the Roman day, there were several different types of marriages. Uh, We really only have one type of marriage, at least here in America, but in Paul's day in Rome, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of marriages. And you could get married and yet not be under the authority or, or the responsibility of your husband. So what Paul is really getting at is if you're going to obey Jesus, it doesn't matter what your marriage arrangement was under the law. You need to submit yourself unto a headship. So again, I think Paul, I think this is so interesting. Paul is addressing the cultural land, landscape of his day. And he says, wives, look, I understand that if you come from a wealthy household, you could get married and it's all for the convenience of, of, of the marriage relationship uh, in terms of the financial and, and the prestige. But in that arrangement, in, in of course, under Roman law, you, have, you don't have to submit yourself to under any authority. You can do and have all the selfishness and, and, and do whatever you want to do. Paul says that's, that's not for the believer. That if you are going to be a Christian, you're going to have to come under the authority of. That you're not just going to have a marriage of convenience. This isn't just going to be for finances or, or prestige and popularity. That you're actually going to have to be united in covenantal marriage with this man which is to be a reflection of the reality of Christ. So Paul says, voluntarily come under that authority. Now again, he's not talking about slavery. Uh, Again, that word to subject yourself or to submit yourself is actually a military word, which means to arrange under a rank. Uh, The word shows up 30 times, 38 times throughout the New Testament. Uh, For example, in Ephesians 5.21 Paul says that we, as the body of Christ, are to subject to one another, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Or as James 4, 7 says, submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So Paul's not saying, woman, you are a slave. Obey him at everything. That's not what he's getting at. He's actually talking about the fact that husbands and wives are in partnership. Hey, they're equally responsible in the kingdom of God before the Lord. And yet... This cannot be about selfishness. This cannot be about your own convenience. That you are going to have to submit and come under the authority 
of your man, of, of the husband. But then listen to what he says to the husbands. I actually think the women have it a lot easier, at least according to the passage. Paul says to the husbands, love, which means to cherish, to have a great affection, a care, and a loyalty towards. Again, this is a present, ongoing idea. It's an imperative. It's a command. And again, he's talking about a love that is sacrificing and selfless and serving that does not think about what you can get, but what you can give. In other words, what Paul could be saying, if if I could put it in maybe a different way, is husbands act in such a way that meets a need in which you expect nothing in return, which is would have been so mind-boggling in the Roman day, because the reality was is that Roman love always came with an agenda. In other words, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Hey, I will will show you some affection, but I'm going to demand something from you. Paul says, husbands, you do not get to do that. This is not about what you get. This is all about, hey, how can you serve and how can you pour out your life? And again, I, I love the parallel passage in Ephesians 5 where Paul says, do you know the intensity of this kind of love? The intensity of this love in your life was Jesus and all that he did for his woman, his bride, the church. So women, yeah, you need to submit, but do you know how easy it would be to submit to a man who overwhelmingly loved you like Christ loved the church? So Paul says, hey, would you just go out of your way? Will you just serve? Will you just pour out your life for your, for your spouse? So again, husbands love. So in other words, cherish, have a great affection, care, and loyalty towards. But he also adds in, don't be embittered against them. And when you look at this idea of embitterment, it really is this idea of don't have resentment or cynicism or to make bitter or have a hatred or a frustration towards. In other words, caretake for your spouse and do not be frustrated with them. Hey, do not be angry with them. Serve them. Pour your life out. The reality of marriage is not 50%, 50%. This is not 100%, 0%. It's 100%, 100% coming together in covenantal marriage. Paul says, hey, would you... Would you Submit to your husband like that? Would you love your wife like that? Now, really quick, just as a quick side note, what happens then if your spouse isn't a believer? And I'd love to hear just what Peter says on this because I think Peter gives a great insight in 1 Peter 3.1. He's talking specifically to wives, but the concept applies to both. So listen to what Peter says. This is 1 Peter 3.1. In the same way, way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. In other words, what Peter is saying is, wives, if you have an unbelieving husband, live in such a way that showcases the life of Christ, that your behavior, your life, and your words win them to Jesus. And the concept's true the other way around. Husbands, if you have an unbelieving wife, love them. Treat them as Christ would treat them. And just through your life and through your, your words, would you live in such a way that you, were, you showcase Jesus Christ and you would win them by your life? So again, Paul is talking to a pagan world who's all wrapped up in selfishness and all wrapped up in themselves and, and who have created these marriages of convenience. And he says, okay, you've just come to Christ. Praise the Lord. This is phenomenal. You can't keep behaving like the world behaves. Hey, you are in covenantal marriage, so this can no longer be about your convenience and about your selfishness and about you. This is about would you die to yourself and live for the other? So wives, would you submit? Would you come under 
Husbands, would you start loving and would you just wash the feet of and, and would you both showcase the reality of Christ to the other? Which is why I love marriage. The fact that it is a picture of the reality of what we as believers have with Jesus Christ. That we have died to ourselves and we are living for the other. And wouldn't it be amazing if in your marriage, when, when the world looks upon your marriage, they just go, wow, now I know what a Christian looks like. Wow, now I know what it means for Christ and the church to be one because I've seen it in your marriage. Can I encourage you if you're married, would you, would you, would you submit to your husbands? Men, would you love and not be embittered against your wives? Which means you're going to have to die to yourselves and you're going to have to live for the other. You're going to have to die to your selfish wants and you're going to have to say, how, how can I serve and how can I love and, and, and how can I minister and how can I encourage and how can I just... Because your marriage is supposed to be a reflection, a picture of the reality of Christ and the church. Well, in the second section, Paul talks about family. And Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 20 and 21, he says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. In the parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul says, this is Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. He said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, you got to understand the culture of the day. Children had no rights in the days of Paul. Uh, fathers had absolute authority. Went back to that idea that patria potestis, however you say that Latin word. That the fathers had absolute authority over their children. So again, Paul, interestingly, Paul does not address the fathers first as the head of the household. He says, children, I'm talking to you. Children, here's what I want you to do. I want you to obey your parents in all things because this is pleasing to the Lord. That, that word obey uh, means to be obedient, to follow, to be subject to. It really has this idea of to listen or to hear. Uh, it's, it's this idea of to actively listen. Uh, it's two, again, it's two Greek words, hupo, which means under, and akuyo, which means to actively hear, listen, and obey. So it's this idea of to come under the authority of. It's to actively listen. It's to, it's to heed that which is being spoken. So listen to this. It is the child's responsibility to obey in all things and not merely the things they desire to obey in. It is a choice, which is great because it gives the child dignity. So, and the, oh, and then the, and the motive is to obey the parents, or, or sorry, I'll say it this way. The motive for why we should obey our parents is because it is pleasing to the Lord. So it's not out of fear. It's not out of the fact that the father is the authority figure, and therefore I, I have no choice in this. Paul says, look, I'm, you have responsibility in the kingdom of God. You are to come under and listen to, you are to heed the voice of your parents. Now, obviously, if your parents tell you something opposite of the word of God, you, you obey the word of God. But outside of that, hey, we should come under the influence of, we should listen to the authority and not just listen, but actively listen and come under that authority. And you probably know the difference, but there's a difference between I've heard that and, I, and it came in my ear and I took it in and actually listening to what is being said. There is a, <laughs> there is a vast difference between just hearing somebody and actually listening to what they're saying. So oftentimes we're, as we're listening to somebody, 
we're coming up with our own arguments and we're thinking about, okay, how would I respond to this? And I should probably say this and da, 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 da. What if we would actually actively come under and listen to our parents? Paul says the reason we do that is not because we have to, but because it's actually pleasing to the Lord. In, in the Ephesians passage, he says, there's actually a promise in scripture when we do that. But then he addresses the fathers. He says, okay, children, you should actively listen and you should obey. But, but dads, fathers, the, the, the one in charge of the household, don't exasperate your children, which means to stir up, to provoke, to challenge someone to a contest. Don't irritate or frustrate or to make resentful. And here's what's interesting. Roman fathers were incredibly harsh to their children because they thought it would build character. So I'm going to be really mean and nasty to my children because the harder I am, it's, they, hey, it's going to build character in them. Paul says, don't do that. Don't exasperate them. Don't just provoke them. Instead, treat them in a way that encourages them, not causing them to lose heart. In other words, parents are to make it easy for their children to obey. And yeah, there is a thin line between discipline and exasperating your children, but Paul says, yeah, discipline, but don't overburden them where they just, they live in this provoking, irritable, frustrated. In other words, make it easy for them to obey. So children, you are called to obey, but parents, make it easy for them to obey. Yeah, you're going to have to discipline them, but don't just be harsh for the sake of harshness. Yeah, you may have ultimate authority under the Roman government and, and, and the Roman law, but don't use that for your own selfish, selfishness and just demand unreasonableness from your children. Wouldn't it be neat to have that in our families? Wouldn't it be neat for children to actually obey their parents because it's actually pleasing to the Lord? And wouldn't it be amazing if the parents made it easy for the children to obey? Again, I, w I wish we had some more time to dive into some of the, the depths of all this. But again, study this out. This, there's so much richness in each of these sections. But really quickly, let's look at the last one here, which is all the, this whole idea about work. Paul says in Colossians 3, 22, through uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters, according to, your, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but with integrity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, show to your slaves what is right and fair, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Here's what the parallel passage says in Ephesians 6. Paul says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to, according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord. And not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. It's intriguing that when you look at this idea of slavery, uh, the Roman Empire had roughly, it's estimated, 60 million slaves, which was about a third to a half of the entire Roman population. I mean, the Roman Empire population. And yet many of the slaves were educated. So you need to understand that in the context of Paul's day, we're not talking about slavery as we often think about slavery, especially here in America. Slavery is such a hot topic, especially right now. It's like you use the term and everyone's like, ah, 
they, they just get frustrated culturally. In Paul's day, we're talking 33 to 50% of the entire population were slaves. Uh, most of them lived in kind of uh, group homes, like a big apartment complexes. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of great stuff. But at least they had their own kind of their own little home. Uh, they had to go cook their own meals. We're not talking slaves in the sense of like they were chained up. We're not talking slaves in terms of uh, they didn't have much choices. Uh, they did work for a master. And for the most part, they probably couldn't just choose whether they wanted to work or not work. And they are slaves in the sense that they were responsible. They, they had to show up for work. But for the most part, it would be very similar to what we would call employees. Uh, in other words, if I have a job, I, I'm just, I just can't choose when I come to work. I have, a, I, I have time that I'm supposed to be there, that I'm to put in my certain hours. I'm to do certain kinds of work. And you could say, well, that's not fair. Yeah, I know, but, but that's work. That's really what was kind of going on in this co context. Yes, there were slaves, as we would typically think of slaves. Uh, there were certain people who were actually chained up. So, so we're not downplaying that, and there is that element in the Roman Empire. But the majority of people Paul's talking to are, are well-educated people who actually worked for just these rich, uh, these rich masters, these rich individuals. So again, you can go crazy with this and get really frustrated with the language of slaves and masters, but in our context today, we're really just talking about employers and employees. That there's a certain way an employee is supposed to behave. There's a certain way an employer is supposed to behave. And again, I would encourage you to study this out in a far more depth if you have some time. Uh, but, but let's kind of flesh this out again. It's interesting that the command for the slaves is that they would obey. And it's the exact same word that Paul gave to the children which is this idea to actively listen. It's to come under the authority of. It's to be obedient, to hear, to subject yourself to. So Paul says, look, slaves, listen. Actively listen and come under the authority of your masters. And of course, he spends a lot of time fleshing this out. But he says stuff like, well, don't just work hard when someone is watching. Don't just do it for the eye service. Rather, have the integrity of the heart. So work unto the Lord Fearing him with his integrity of heart. A slave or an employee should serve and obey their employer, their master, and do so as ministry as unto the Lord. So if your master or employer is a Christian, don't take advantage of them. If they're not a Christian, definitely don't take advantage of them, but be an example and a witness to them of the life of Christ. And again, work to please the Lord, not merely to escape punishment from your master. Again, a master could, could, you know, sell off his slaves. He could punish the slaves greatly if he desired. So Paul says, don't, don't just obey what they say because of fear of punishment. Obey them as un, working unto the Lord. O obey them because you want to help the master. You want to serve and wash the feet of the master. And if they're not a believer, to showcase the reality of the life of Christ to them. Wouldn't it be neat to have that kind of an attitude at our jobs? That the best employees to hire would be Christians. And that may have been true back in the day, but I've heard from so many employers that the people they would really not prefer to work for them are Christians. And that is such a devastating statement that there should be, every, every company in this country should be desperate to say, if you're a Christian, I will hire you immediately because they are the best workers. They, are, they have the most integrity. They never still, they always do their job. They don't, don't, 
They don't just steal the, the money and the resources or whatever, the supplies. They don't steal time. They don't dawdle. They don't just look at social media when they're supposed to be working. They are diligent. They're the hardest workers. They are so trustworthy. I need to hire more Christians. Wouldn't that be a neat testimony of the, of the life of Christ to our employers? So Paul says, don't just serve them. Don't just, don't just go to work because you have to. Work as unto the Lord. So if you're a plumber, be a plumber for Jesus. If you're a teacher, teach unto Jesus. Hey, if, no matter what you're doing, if you're a city sweeper, hey, sweep that street with all your might unto the Lord. Because whatever you do, do it heartily unto Jesus. Now, Paul talks to the masters. And again, the Roman law gave legal right to the masters to abuse their slaves. But what he's saying, what Paul says is, so even though you have that legal right, that doesn't mean you have the right to do so under God's law. That you, as a master, are also under the authority of the master in heaven, Jesus. So therefore, treat your slaves or your employees as you would expect to be treated by Christ. And if you want a great example of this, uh, look at the book of Philemon, where Paul talks about, hey, treat your slaves as brothers, brothers in the Lord, not merely as your property. As you look at these three sections, and again, there's a lot going on, and again, I'd so highly encourage you to just study these out in far more depth. But it's interesting, in every single one of these scenarios, what Paul is really getting at is, would you just reflect Jesus? Which goes back to what we studied in the last session, that I'm to put off everything in the world, and I'm to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus' life is to mark my own. And Paul begins to apply that very practically in our relationships. And he says, husbands and wives, you need to be Jesus to each other. Fathers or parents and, and children, you need to be Jesus to each other. Employers and employees, what if you were Jesus to each other? In other words, if, if I call myself a Christian and I put on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm in the kingdom of the beloved son, then the reality and the lifestyle and the characteristics of that kingdom should define my life. Can I ask you, is that true in you? When you look at your relationships, if you're married with your spouse, if, if you have a family, you know, with your, with, your, with your children, or if you're a child with your parents, hey, down at your job, the way that you, you treat your employees or the way you would treat your employer, does it reflect the life of Jesus? See, so oftentimes in all of our relationships, we are so inward focused. We're so interested in ourselves and what I can get out of it and what I can do and da 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 da, da. Rather than saying, how can I showcase the life and the love of Jesus in every one of my relationships. Could I encourage you, don't make excuses in our relationships for why we're not fully loving, for why we are selfish, for why we are guarded. What would it look like if we surrendered unto Jesus and said, Jesus, would you so shape and form every single one of my relationships that you would be seen and glorified? That's what Paul's saying. I'm really excited to get into the next study with you. And uh, as, as we look at the next study, uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And uh, we're going to be kind of finishing up this section in terms of the practicality of the Christian life. We're going to talk about prayer and proclamation. And again, as I've been saying through each of these things, I would highly encourage you to study ahead and, and use the study guides that are provided if, you, if you'll sign up for them. And again, there's a link below the video or on, in the show notes. But if you sign up for the study guide and the notes, I really want to help you not only learn how to study the Word of God, but I really want you to, to dive in and press yourself into the Word. There's something unique and special 
about not just hearing someone talk about the word, but actually studying the word for yourself. For example, in our section today, I'm, I'm fairly confident that if you would actually spend some time and study those three sections, God is going to so deeply press his truth and his word upon your life, it will change you. So can I encourage you, don't just listen to these messages, but engage with them in the word. And I would encourage you to study ahead and look at what does this mean? What does it mean to practically live out this idea of prayer and the proclamation of the word? But we're going to dive into that in the next session. So let's just pray and we'll, we'll close this one. Lord, we love you. Lord, I do just pray that you would invade every one of our relationships. Uh, whether it's a marriage relationship, it's a family relationship, or whether it's a, a work relationship, Lord, I pray that you would showcase your life, your love, the gospel, through our lives and through our lips in every relationship. Lord, I pray that we would not be turning within and, and think selfishly, but Lord, that we would, we would engage and say, okay, how can I serve and how can I minister and how can I show forth the reality of the truth of the gospel to those that I work with and those that I live with and those that I, that I love deeply. So Lord, would you be evident that which has filled us up with your very presence? Lord, would you spill that out in our relationships? And would you let us walk in practical holiness that does not look like the world around us, but that looks like you in our relationships? Lord, we give you all the glory and we love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.